1: welcome to the June 24th, 2008 edition of Rubber Guard Radio. I am your host, KZ. Our first segment is brought to you by our sponsor, WrestleWarehouse.com. Uh, you can get Lucha Libre masks, wrestling DVDs, uh, all kinds of different stuff, WWE swag and all that other fun stuff. And also the other sponsor will be FogCityWrestling.com. Uh, Fog City will be debuting in a new building on July 5th in San Francisco at the Keysar pavilion uh you can get all information on that show at fogcitywrestling.com enough of the bullshit i am on the line with one of my personal favorite pro wrestlers mr al snow how you doing al
0: i'm doing very well how are you
1: oh tremendous tremendous it's cooled off a lot up here in northern california oh man oh we've been going through a heat wave and uh it's not hasn't been too pleasant how's it out there in lima ohio
0: it's actually not too bad. It's been mostly in the nineties, but uh, not real humid. So you know, it's been pretty pleasant. As long as it doesn't get too humid, I don't mind. So,
1: cool. Well, welcome to the show. Um, I do have to go on the air and on the record. I will have to put Rob Feinstein over for uh, hooking you up with me. Thank you, Rob. I know you're listening. Um, <laughs> you know, Rob's a good guy. You know, you you do a favor for him, he does one for you. So
0: that's right. Rob's been around the business for quite a while. So. Rob was actually very instrumental in uh, when I first went to uh, ECW the very first time. Uh, God, I can't remember the year, but it was before I had the second run, before I went 94. to WV the first time. So, uh, you know, that was uh, Rob was instrumental in getting that done. It was
1: 1994. Rob was the promoter for the house show. It was at a high school, and you worked. Sabu?
0: Mm, I think it might have been Taz, you know. I was
1: Taz. I was yeah, Taz. Right.
0: It was... Taz tested tough uh numerous times. So okay.
1: <laughs> Yeah, so it was Taz and then you uh, you showed up for double tables with Benoit. Uh,
0: I would also uh had worked at the arena with uh, uh a good friend of mine Osama Nishimura uh and uh a couple other couple of shows I think. I, I you know, it's hard to remember and then And then, of course, uh, with Benoit.
1: Well, you brought up uh, Mr. Nishimura. Um, You know, the guy's beat cancer, and he's still doing this stuff at a high level.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's a terrific guy. You know, uh, I've kind of lost touch with him over the years, but Osama Nishimura is a very good friend, and, you know, I still consider him a very good friend, even though I haven't actually spoken to him in quite some time. And, you know, I was really worried about him and, you know, his health. Uh, when he, had, you know, was uh, battling cancer, um, because you know, uh, God, you know, they don't want to hear that for anybody, especially a a, a person you consider your friend, and uh, you know, but thank God he's uh, he's fought back, and uh, you know, he's uh, it looks like he's doing better than ever. I mean, he's still in the ring, performing, and doing what he loves to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what 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 do you think of um, Mr. Nishimura as an in-ring? Uh, talent
0: well you know when I saw him I mean he was he was very uh, very young and very green and they had sent him to the United States to put on weight and everything like that and unfortunately I haven't really gotten a chance to, to watch him much since then I'm sure that he's he's probably only gotten you know he's probably only gotten just better and better uh, since I saw him and he was very good then you know we had some really good matches so I'm sure he's probably even even better now
1: okay well, um, the 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 listeners that are listening, they they know where you come from. We're not going to go, you know, from the beginning, you know, where where you broke in, you know, the Andersons sure. did their thing and all that. So we're just going to pass over all that stuff. Um, sure. Give me give me a Jim Lancaster story on the road.
0: A Jim Lancaster story? Uh, God, there's tons of them. I mean, you know, you always had to keep on your toes with Jim. He was always he was you know always thinking, and uh, you know, if you, by chance, uh, we'd always stop to eat, and by chance, if you you were in there and you forgot your wallet or something, you know, he would make a big deal of it and make it seem like, you know, you were trying to skip out on the check uh, when you were going out to your car to get your wallet. Um, Just different ways to rib you, a hundred different ways. His brother Rick was the easiest to rib because he would sell the most, uh, especially when it came to anything uh, remotely that seemed homosexual, and uh, which was even funnier when you consider Rick was over 300 pounds and so was Jim, so it was like two giant homosexuals. So Jim would automatically, whenever we'd go into a restaurant, would start rubbing up on Rick and acting like, you know, it was his gay lover. And then of course Rick would deny it and Jim would act like, you know, how it hurt his feelings and he's gonna start to cry and cause a huge scene in in front of the entire uh, restaurant. Which would you know embarrass Rick even more um and then i even uh you know use uh we had a friend uh who was a he was a black wrestler and uh was on the road with us, and we'd go to you know some of these towns were incredibly uh uncomfortable with black people in the first place, and you know every time we'd go into a restaurant, you know jim would excuse me ma'am do you, do you, do you serve black people here you know and uh i i myself you know Did that with Devon and Maven one time when we went up. We were in in Canada, and uh, every time we go into a restaurant, I'd uh, excuse me, miss, excuse me. uh, Do you serve black people here? And they'd all get really worried and start getting nervous. And you know, Devon would go, "Wow, what are you doing?" And I, you know, which would of course put it over even more. And I'd go, "Because they're Negroes." And Maven, you know, would get all, you know, would just start laughing, and the 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 people would just get so upset and worked up. And I thought it was funny, you know, and so did Devon and Maven. So to get me back, uh, we finally ended up in Nova Scotia, uh, the last night of the tour, and uh, we were in Halifax, and uh, we had rented a big SUV, um, and uh, we went in. And, um, Maven and Devon and I were still riding together, and Maven was driving the car, and we we go to uh, leave, and they have a uh, like a gate you know, in front of uh, like a barrier. So I get out of the uh, truck not thinking, with Devon in the backseat and Maven driving. And I, you know, I'm not even considering it. I go to move the, move the barrier. Um, and the minute I go to move it, the guy, the security guy goes, oh, I got it, got it. So as I'm walking back to the truck, I hear a click, click, and they lock the doors. And I'm like, oh, crap. So I jump on the running bar and hang on to the luggage rack. So they drive right out of the building with me hanging inside of the car, and they drive right through the fans, who, oh, of course, the fans are centered. hey, there's no not realizing I'm hanging on the outside of a car uh, while it's moving, like a stunt person. And uh, I thought, ah, no big deal. You know, that once we get outside through the fans, they'll stop. No, they didn't. They drove on down to the end of the street and then turned the corner. I thought, well, they'll stop now. No, they continued to drive all around the downtown area of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, with me beating on the uh, door trying to get in. They wouldn't let me in. They were going to start driving out towards the airport, which if anybody's been to Halifax knows it's like a 20-minute ride, which I was not going to ride on the outside of the on the truck, hanging on the uh, luggage rack for 20 minutes at 65 miles an hour. It wasn't going to happen. So I started screaming, help police. Negroes are stealing my car. Help police. And uh, after about two or three times of that, they immediately pulled over and unlocked the car and let me in. So... Um, which was pretty funny. I mean, you know. And before anybody goes, well, I was racist or whatever. I'm the least racist person that there could possibly be on this earth. I just, it was just something funny to do and get a reaction out of uh, out of them. So.
1: So Ed, Ed, after you broke in, you you were you were doing the thing out out in the Midwest, Ohio, Michigan, and whatnot. Um, and. Actually, I was doing
0: it all pretty much all over. I mean, not just. Ohio and Michigan, you know, I would go into Kentucky and West Virginia and Virginia and uh, Illinois and Pennsylvania and just wherever I could get booked, you know. And I worked for a lot, of, a lot of territories, you know, that at the time were starting to fizzle away when I first got started. So uh,
1: how did you come across a young – a a a gentleman whose career was as paralleled with yours, Sabu? How did you run into him on the road and –
0: well, you know, I'd, I'd met cebu a couple of times on different shows with, you know, cause, uh, with his uncle. And, uh, you know, our paths would cross. And, uh, in fact, I remember cebu from when, you know, he wasn't even really smart to the business. You know, because his uncle refused to smarten him up. And uh, um, he was always a, you know, he's always a good guy. Very, you know, people just don't realize just how how great a guy he really is. Um but, uh, um, you know, he would be on the same show. Then he started being on the same shows. I remember I worked a show for, in that's Hall. I think it's the first time I saw him actually wrestle in Michigan where Malcolm Monroe, God rest his soul, would run a show. And I'd used, I think that was Rob Van Dam, and his partner at the time was a, a guy by the name of Dango who was just as talented as Rob, and they had just, you know, it was like their first or second match, I think. Um and then i was running some shows in, in lima at the time and you know brought them down to use them too uh use rob and uh dango and sabu himself and uh um, you know and then uh just kept bumping into each other and we you know got to know each other very well
1: because he's sabu is one of those there was a handful of guys around that time on um, before you went into smokey where where it was either you against Sabu, or you against Benoit, or uh, Scorpio. There was just a handful of guys that you know that were just scraping away to get you know with one of the bigger companies. And uh, one match that that has stuck in my mind forever. It's one of my favorite independent matches. It was filmed by Bob Barnett in Pomona, California, 9/11/94. Sabu, Al Snow, and Terry Funk in a high school and Still, that match still stands the test of time. Um, you may remember remember it because of Terry Funk was going nuts in the parking lot, and the police well, were yeah. called. And
0: yeah, and he had to crawl underneath the van. And yeah, it was funny.
1: Yeah, that was good stuff. And I, I watched that match at least at least once a month. It still stands the test of time. Um, what, what do you think of Terry Terry as a worker?
0: But Terry Funk. I mean, God, well, you know what hasn't been said. I mean, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's a guy I, I that... a
1: about from a fan standpoint, Al?
0: Uh, from a fan standpoint, Terry Funk has the one, the one thing that makes, makes professional wrestling, and that is unpredictability. You know, you can't... If it gets to the point to where you can predict everything, and you can predict when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, why it's going to happen, there's nothing fun about it. The point of professional wrestling is to never know what to expect. Because to be honest with you, to, to really do it properly, you really, when you walk out there, you don't know what to expect because you don't know what the fans are going to do. And it's all just completely impromptu. And then and there's nobody more impromptu than, than Terry Funk. I mean, you, know, you just got to kind of go with whatever's going to happen. And, uh, um, you know, and he's believable. Uh, you know, he goes out there, people believe he's nuts and, I mean, probably is. (laughs) A little bit, you know. know, uh, So many people in this business have, you know, emulated or copied aspects of Terry Funk and what he does and how he does it. And, uh, you know, and I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, guys that you might know. I'm talking, you know, like Harley Race and guys like that have taken things uh, from from Terry, you know, little things here and there and and utilized them and, and made them their own. And uh, um, Terry Funk's just amazing, you know, and he just, you know, um, keeps going. I mean, he, you know, and, the only, you know, don't fool yourself. I mean, the only reason that Terry Funk keeps going is not because he needs to. It's because he, he truly loves the business. I mean, he just absolutely loves the wrestling business. And it's, it's hard. I've kind of come to realize, you know, when uh, I always wondered why sometimes old-timers were always so... Bitter, you know, because the vast majority of them are pretty bitter. But the reason that they are is because you know, it's it's so amazing to actually be in that ring and to do what you do uh, that when you get older and you realize that you know you can't get to do it anymore or do it quite at the level that you could. Um, A lot of guys sometimes get a little. I think they inadvertently get a little jealous and, and a little bitter towards the guys that still can because they so, so badly still want to be able to get in there and do it.
1: Well, the, the, the thing about Terry is that, that he's had many different careers where he's able to, to change himself and, and evolve, and that's, that's his secret to his longevity. That, and he is unpredictable. Um, you oh, and you're on absolutely the, on right.
0: The marquee. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely so. right that he's he's changed and he's evolved and you know he's a, he's the reason he's had those opportunities to, to to change and evolve is because he's been able to change and evolve. He's not stayed static. You know, he's always you know been developing the new, always growing and 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 you know and 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 sometimes even acknowledging or accepting. Who and what he really is, you know, like when he was in WCW and he was, you know, talking about how he was middle-aged and crazy, you know, he wasn't trying to go out there and try and put it off like he was something he
1: wasn't. I have to agree. Um, yeah, Terry Terry was one of those guys as well that was that was the the handful of guys that you could, you know, go out there and and you would like Scorpio and, and these other guys where you would get booked with these guys. Um, what do you have any stories of uh, the military base matches you had out here in uh, California? Uh,
0: you know, I, the one, I remember that one that you were talking about with, uh, taboo and, and, you know, I went through a long period of time there where I was booked a lot with taboo pretty much all over the country. And, uh, you know, it was, it, we just had a chemistry. We clicked and we complimented each other. And, uh, you know, uh, um, and then involving Terry Funk in the match, you know, they were hoping to to eventually, you know, build to some kind of three way match. I think, and that would have been like a dream come true. I mean, that would have just been, you know, amazing to have gotten the chance to do that. And you know, the military bases. I mean, it's it's hard for me to just pick one uh, match so out. Many of
1: them. I mean, uh, they were just so yeah.
0: many. Yeah, it's really tough. T- I mean, it's really tough. I I hope so. I mean, I I really have always tried uh, every night to go out uh, for 26 years. I've always tried, and, you know, some, let's face it, sometimes I, I probably didn't even come close to the mark, but um, there were I've always tried to go out and make sure that, you know, the fans got their money's worth. Um, you know, people can say whatever they want uh, about my career, but I, I certainly have never not, have shirked working, and work, you know, because I just genuinely love to get in the ring and, and, and perform and, uh, um, you know, and do everything I possibly can with whoever I am in that ring with at the time, uh, regardless of, you know, their status or, uh, experience level or, uh, or, you know, age or any, that makes no difference to me. If you know, I'm going to do everything I can that when, so, when somebody pays to see me, and when they leave, that they they feel like they, you know they they got their money's worth.
1: One of the matches that in in this time period, ninety three, ninety four, that that stands out was the uh, the matches you had with Chris Candido. Um, what 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 are your feelings on 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 the the work that Candido did and and your chemistry with him?
0: Uh, you know, Chris was a was an amazingly talented, uh, you know, professional wrestler, and uh, you know it was just such a joy to, to 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 work with him in the ring because, you know, he, he it's and this we have a saying in wrestling and we used to anyways, is that you know there are two types of matches and the one was that you could you go out and you'd work with a guy and it was like a night off you know you could go out there and you know the guy would dance with you and and it really is it's like a dance uh you know he can just uh you could go out there and you turn right he turns right you turn left he turns left you know you step forward he steps back you step back he steps forward i mean it and and it, it just takes a you know oh just one little word from e- either one of you and the and the other guy just goes boom right there and, and and those are nights off. I mean, they're, you don't feel the next day or even later that night, you don't feel tired. You don't feel physically hurt. You actually feel energized. And you can't wait to do it the next night after that. It's, you know, it's the greatest high in the world. And then there are guys that you get in the ring with. It's like dancing with a Jeep. You know, you, you just can't seem to get them to, you know, they're on their own page. And it's like, it literally is like pulling teeth or like having your teeth pulled. And man, you know, it, it. unfortunately these days it's more about pulling teeth than it is about the nights off. And the nights off, uh, every time you stepped in the ring with, you know, Chris Candido was like a night off. I mean, it was so much fun because one minute you'd, you know, you'd be out there and you'd be, you know, wrestling a serious wrestling match. And then all of a sudden you'd, you could throw in, you know, some ridiculous ha ha funny make the people laugh for a second spot and then go right back to you know blood and guts wrestling and then right back to you know making them laugh for a second it was so simple and so easy to do that and you know Chris was was so uh, he was how can I say he was so he honestly was so full of life he had his demons that's for sure but he was so full of life and he, he had he truly loved absolutely madly loved the business and uh, and truly, you could see he, he was at his happiest when he was at a wrestling show and absolutely at his happiest when he was in a wrestling match. Um, you know, he, I don't know if a lot of people know his grandfather, uh, mm-hmm. you know, wrestled. And, uh, you know, that's where Chris caught the bug. He was, it's, it's such a shame because he was such a good friend. Um, you know, I went to his funeral and, and just cried uh, because it was such a loss. You know, you'd walk into the building and you'd see Chris Candido, and you know, just light up because you just knew, you know, no matter what, it was going to be, you know, it was going to be good. You know, you're going to have, you're going to have fun somehow, some way. You're going to have a good time. So
1: yeah, I, 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 I put Chris in in the same category as as you, where it's it's more than a job. You guys go out there and you, you, you it's it's enjoyable. You guys and you're you're not just telling the fans a story. You're telling the fan, the boys in the back a story as well. Um, oh yeah, sometimes I, we
0: were telling I, ourselves a story too. <laughs>
1: yeah, sure, that's you know that that's I put you in the same category as well because you know it, you you see Al Snow on the marquee, you see Candido on the marquee, you know damn well you're going to get a good match. You know it's not going to be crap. You know and it's not going to be the garbage that you see on TV. You know, it it's and it's a shame that Candido passed because um I'll tell you, he would have had the highest enrollment in the Chris Candido Wrestling Academy, I could tell you that much. Yeah, I finally decided well, to hang it up.
0: Chris was a uh was such a talented kid that uh I think he was you know, probably one of the uh modern age, you know, greats. I think he would have been especially if he could have kept his own uh, personal demons under control, and I think he was getting them under control, and I think he was on his right track. I think, you know, years to come, like everybody talks about Terry Funk and, you know, uh, Harley Race and, you know, this guy and that guy. I think, you know, in years to come, I think people would talk about, you know, Chris Candido in the same way, which I think would would thrill him more than anything else. Yeah, um, exactly. So exactly. it's a shame. It, it really is, and it, and not just for the wrestling business for but in general that people you know that you know he had to pass away so young that you know people, you know lose such a such a good guy. It's really sad.
1: And he was a a good guy outside of the ring. You know, he'd give his shirt Yeah and that's
0: what I mean is that you know, that's what I mean by you know, and like Sabu, I mean, you know, people don't realize like Sabu, you know, if he called you up and he got he said, Yeah, you know, I got this guy, he's booking a show and, you know, you want to come and work on it and so on and so forth, and you go, yeah, okay, sure, no problem. You get there, and the guy then wouldn't pay you. Well, then Sebu would take money out of his own pocket and make sure that you got paid because he put his, you know, he gave his word. You know, he's the one that got you booked, so he felt responsible. You know, and Chris, I, you know, Chris was like the the, the head of the island of the misfit toys. I mean, he, you know, went out of his way to help, you know, Balls Mahoney and, you know, uh, uh, Handsome Jimmy shoulders and. You know, Paul Paul e. I, I just uh, tons of guys. You know, so it's not just the uh, the wrestling world's lost, but the world's lost that you know, a guy like you know Chris Candido is no longer in it.
1: Another another guy that that was floating around uh, at this time was uh, Dilo Brown.
0: Um, yes, uh, Dilo spent Dilo, a little time spent time with me Dilo at my just school. Just got
1: resigned. Did you see that he just got resigned by uh, yeah, by good New for York?
0: Him. Yeah, good um, for him.
1: Well, kinda. Um, I've really gotten into his his All Japan and New Japan stuff. He's he's really picked it up to a new level, and it's gonna be interesting to see what what not even what he can do, but what he will be allowed to do up there. Um,
0: well, hey, well, hold on now. The, the, you know the, the the that's a big misnomer or myth of what he'll be allowed to do. You know uh, they, they don't. Keep you from doing things, um, you know. I, I can honestly say I, I that in the, and I believed it too at one time, and that's just it's asinine to think this way. And that is is that you know Vince does not want everybody to get as much heat as possible or to get over as much as possible. That's just it's insane. The more a person gets over, the, and the more heat a person gets, the more Vince can now do things with. Uh, the more money he can make. Uh, and if not for money, more than what really drives him is just his passion for the wrestling business, the more he can now, you know, uh, how many people out there think that he really, Vince McMahon, does not want to go back to the late 80s when he was running A, B, and C towns every single night of the week? How many people think that he does not want to do that? But in order to be able to do that, he has to have as many guys as possible on that roster, get as much heat as possible, if they're heels, and get over as much as they possibly can, not just two or three or four guys, but every guy. He wants everybody to do that. Now, granted, I mean, I'm not naive, I'm not stupid. There are politics that are plays involved in there, but you got to understand what Delo did in uh, uh, New Japan, or I forget where you said he worked, but what he did there worked there their psychology is different the reason their psychology is different is because their audience is different the national sport in japan is judo that means that they play judo in, in uh as part of phys ed training in high school like you play basketball or baseball or football in high school in phys ed they do it in japan in high school so people have a physical relationship with what happens in the ring as opposed to what happens here in the United States. People don't have a physical relationship to what happens in the ring. So the psychology in Japan is based differently than what it is here in the United States. And they may be bringing D'Lo in, um, think of it like a picture puzzle. And he's a particular piece that they're trying to fit in to make a particular picture. If D'Lo doesn't come in and do what particular business they need him to have done, that's not them holding back. It's that DLO is not doing that business. Now, you have to understand that business is all important, and this is something that's kind of getting lost in, in, in wrestling. Um, cause I'll, and I'll ask you, because, you know, I assume you want DLO to go in there and have the best match you could possibly have, don't you? Yes, sir. Okay. That would be great. But the problem is everybody does not know all of the uh, quote-unquote smart marks out there, which is an oxymoronic term because how can you be marked for something if you're smart to it? And a mark is somebody that's being lied to and being conned, but apparently you're smart to it at the same time. It's not possible. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like military intelligence. It just doesn't work. Um, or, uh, or an honest politician. They just, you know, they don't go together. Um, it costs $30,000 for 30 seconds on Raw. Okay? 30 seconds of airtime costs $30,000. They give DLO a six-minute match. That's $360,000 that Vince McMahon has just invested into DLO, not counting. Uh, rent, the rent for the arena, uh, all the lights, the cameras, the um, rigs, the, that stage, uh, the people that work in the, the studio, the truck, the satellite time. I, I mean, I could go down the list. Do you think Vince wants him to go out there and have the best match on the show, or do you think Vince wants him to go out there and do whatever business he needs that will now sell more than $360,000 worth of tickets? No. Uh-huh. Which do you think it is?
1: <laughs> he wants to sell the tickets. It's simple.
0: Yeah, because he, because to pay for all those semis you see in the parking lot, all those other wrestlers that you want to watch, and all the TV time, etc., 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 Every single person that gets put on that TV show has to sell more tickets than what has been invested in him. If he does not, then you're not doing business. If you're not doing business, then no matter how great the match was, what's the matter? Let's say D-Lo has a great match. He has a match in a building that seats 5,000 people, and there are 3,000 people there. He has the greatest match that you've ever seen in the history of wrestling. No doubt about it. I mean, Jesus could walk on water, and it still wouldn't be as astounding as the match you just saw below have. Okay, next mm-hmm. month you ran that same building, but you had fifteen hundred people instead of three thousand. How great was the match?
1: Didn't draw, so I guess it's not.
0: Apparently, it's not now, is it?
1: Everybody's it seen is.
0: WrestleMania three, correct? Yes, sir. Who was the greatest worker? Who were the greatest workers on the show? Hogan and Andre. Your answer is correct, because 93,000 people paid to see Hogan and Andre. Not the answer that first comes to your mind, because I'm sure it did and you didn't say it, which was Savage and Steamboat. Savage and Steamboat were not the best workers on the card, because 93,000 people did not pay to see Savage and Steamboat. 93 people paid to see Hogan and Andre.
1: Well, there, there was a reason that they had Hogan and Andre on the Piper's Pit as opposed to Steamboat and Savage. Savage on the Piper's Pit.
0: Because Hogan and Andre would draw 93,000 people. Savage and Steamboat right. at that time were not. And that's not a disparagement on Savage and Steamboat. It's, it's an example to help wrestling fans understand what it is that wrestlers are really supposed to be trying to do. Unfortunately, wrestlers nowadays are out there trying to have the best match on the show and not the show, not have the match that sells the most tickets. That, you know, uh, best match on the show? Probably Savage and Steamboat. Match that sold the most tickets, therefore really the best match on the show? Andre and Hogan. There
1: you go. Well, let's bring up a, a name from your past. Bruiser Bedlam. Now, Oh, Johnny K9! I love him. Huh? He is so scary looking. ha! Ah.
0: I love I love them. I love Bruiser Bedlam.
1: Any uh, Any road stories with the Bruiser?
0: Oh, uh, you could you could you know, put tons of them. But probably most of them would probably get him thrown in jail someplace, some point here in North America. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm sure. It just you know, he's Johnny Kane. I mean, he's Bruiser Bedlam. You know, the man could it used to have it. He called it named his you know, penis Bobo. And would have have Bobo do tricks like have Bobo smoke a cigarette and things like that. It was you know, you know. Uh, uh, I can't say enough about it. He's you know he's a one of a kind. He's a one in a million, and you know thank God. <laughs> but at the yes, same time, exactly. I I I, I can't you know. Let me tell you something. I'm thrilled every day I got the chance to meet you know, bruiser uh, uh, Bellum. <laughs> he's tremendous. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm, I'm I'm going through your history here, and uh, you decided to start working for Jim Cornette In Smoky Mountain, and you started to team with a young Glenn Jacobs Kane. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. Did you, in your honest opinion, feel that Kane would be a star? That Glenn would be a star?
0: Oh, I think that, you know he had all the had the all the tools and the attributes, and you know before he was Kane, you know, when he was the, the big, the fake, big daddy cool, the, the the fake diesel, that was where he really got it. That was where he really turned his career around. I mean, that was where he really came into his own. And, uh, you know, I think that's what really helped him, uh, become, uh, Kane or have an understanding. Um, you know, he, uh, uh The thing about being a professional wrestler is it takes years and and a lot of experience good and bad to really uh understand what it is that you're trying to do out there and you know he had his run as isaac Yankum, and but it was a learning experience for him and I think that when he had that chance as as uh a fake diesel, that was where he really took off and you know and and you know when I came in uh I totally you know when I think back about it. And I think back about it with the experience I had with and my understanding that I have now. I mean I completely screwed up that that chance that I had with uh with Glenn. I mean we we were a great team. Um but they they brought they brought me in Cornette brought me in to replace uh Eddie Gilbert. Uh Eddie had taken off and went to Puerto Rico. And uh the deal was supposed to be that, you know, I would be the heater. I'd be the guy that would run his mouth and you know, be able to wrestle, but, you know, make everybody want to see him get his ass kicked. And then, you know, Glenn would be the guy that would step in and stop. And, you know, the fans would have that idea in their head that, boy, if it, only, if it hadn't been for, you know, the big monster, you know, the babyface would eventually get his hands on on me. And, you know, we did great as far as, you know, a team and stuff. The problem was I did too much stuff. I wrestled too much. I didn't understand it by doing less. I'd have gotten more heat. I'd have gotten more I'd have been more of a draw as a heel and been more and gotten more heat as a heel. Uh and then thus sold more tickets. I was still out there trying to have uh you know, the best match on the card. And we had some really great matches with, you know, Ricky and Robert and you know, uh Tracy Smothers and uh Dirty White Boy and, and, and you know, I can go down and down with the Armstrongs. Uh we had a lot of really great matches. But the problem is that wasn't what I was there for. And you know, unfortunately, you know, nobody smarted me up to it. You know, I wish Jimmy had pulled me aside and said, "Hey, stupid, do it this way," um, because it would have gotten so much more heat, which would have then, you know, maybe I could have helped, you know, up the territory even more. Um, and you know, looking back now, I completely understand that.
1: Now, so. whose whose idea was it for for you and Glenn to to uh, do the promos with the wigs? about the rocket. Oh,
0: oh, uh those all the promos and stuff were my idea. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would set driving because you know you really? remember I drove from Lyme, Ohio to Tennessee every week and oh, God, wow. that was you brutal. You know, and I would sit in the car and I would try to come up with, you know, uh, promos. Just different ways. Uh, you know, different promos, different things. You know, some of the, the really good stuff, the funny stuff or I should say, or very entertaining stuff. A lot of people didn't get to see it because every week we had to do uh, we had to do towns. You know, we had to do sitting in there and we'd do ten or twelve, you know, uh, thirty-second, forty-five-second promos for the towns. And it was my, you know, and I knew all the boys were watching, so I did everything I could to uh, entertain myself and entertain the boys too. And uh, you know, I didn't want to just do uh, the same pat uh promo each time I did a promo for a different town. So every time I did a, a, a different town, I did a, a completely different promo. Uh, even if I were, you know, one we had one run where we were working with the Armstrongs and I'd constantly be trying to do, you know, uh, a brand new promo for every town. And uh, and I'd always try to make Glenn laugh under his mask and um, see if I could, you know, I knew it was a good one if I could make him start to lose, you know, lose his composure because he did everything he could to keep his composure. So, like, even one time, you know, when Bob Armstrong was wearing the mask and I, I, you know, I swore up and down that, you know, the Armstrongs were uh, an army of thieves and, you know, Bob were, uh, you know, they actually wore different masks than their other job, which was robbing convenience stores. And I, uh, much like uh, Raising in Arizona, you know, bent down and put pantyhose over my head that still had both legs on it and continued to cut the promo swinging the pantyhose around like big rabbit ears, you know, back and forth, uh, trying to get Glenn to lose it underneath his mask. So, um, you know, and I just, you know, the great thing about, uh, you know, you know, wrestling is, is that you know, you know, you don't have any constraints. Put on you. If it's done properly, you know, you don't have constraints. Put on you. You're, you're told, you know, go out there and get these points across, and then you're free to to do it however you want to do it you know they would you know occasionally suggestions would be made but then the rest was just left up to up to you know me so you know i came up with all kinds of you know i was supposed to be a smart ass uh chicken shit uh heel and uh so that gave me freedom to just you know go out there and pretty much say whatever i wanted
1: you, you've had many, many memorable promos, many memorable vignettes. Um, my personal favorite vignette that I've seen of yours was when you were in the bar. Uh, this was a WWF promo. It was a little after you came in uh, for your your uh, run in 98, and you were in the bar with Head, and Head wanted to drive home, and Head fell off the bar stool, and you said, friends don't let Heads drive drunk. That's yeah. my personal favorite vignette. Um What's your personal favorite vignette that you've done?
0: Oh, gosh, that's, you know, that's hard to say. I mean, never. you got to think, I was on, especially just just in WWF alone, I was on uh, TV back when we worked both Raw, SmackDown, and, you know, I was on Raw, SmackDown, and Heat, and then Velas- I was on every one of those shows every single week doing something for for a couple of years, you know, where I was just on everything. Uh you know, and not always, you know, always being the big, you know, the the center of attention. But I was always on there doing something, doing some kind of business. And uh, you know, I'm trying to think. I think, you know, one of the things because I I think some of the best stuff I ever did outside of the ring, uh, vignette-wise, was with Steve Blackman. And uh, uh, somebody reminded me of this, and I had and I just I had forgotten it. Um, but then when they reminded him, I thought, yeah, my God, that was tremendous. That was, I really loved that. And that was, I was reading a poem to Steve Blackman. And as I was reading the poem, that was when he held the hardcore belt and had that 24 seven rule and guys were attacking him. Uh, and I was oblivious and complaining to him. It was because he didn't listen to me. Um, and he's, you know, killing people left and right as they're jumping out of the woodwork, trying to beat him for the hardcore title. And then finally I just turned to him and go, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. He just, you never heard a word I said. And they just stormed off. And uh, it was, you know, it it was really, it was really a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, the some of the, that stuff was just, just unbelievable. Um, uh, like when you came, when you first came back in 98, the, the, the trying to get the meeting with Vince, and then uh, coming in the different disguises, and that stuff was brilliant. Um, who assisted in in getting? I hate using the word writing, but who helped? Who helped write the, the those vignettes and promos? Uh, words, who you know, were, they didn't really
0: write the vignettes or promo, promos, but like like you said, assist. I guess you could say was like uh, uh, Russo was very instrumental in in you know coming up with situations or things that, you know, okay, here's what you're going to do. And now, you know, and then I pretty much, you know, he, he'd give me some ideas and then I'd do the rest, you know, uh, uh, you know, like, you know, he came to me and, you know, oh, you know, we were in Florida. i never forget. We were in Tampa, Florida, you know, and I would show up at the building and, you know, he's like, uh, yeah, you need to have a, uh, I had to have a eulogy and i basically a, uh, Um, you know, a a funeral for Pierre the Deerhead, you know, Mm -hmm. and the day of, you know, just walks up and says that. And it's like, what? You know, so I got to go around and get stuff and gather, you know, gather up ideas and ways that I can, you know, and I go out there and I have, you know, a a, a funeral for a Deerhead, you know. Um, You know, and Brian Goertz, when we were doing the Blackman stuff, he and I would talk, and we'd come up with different ways. You know, I'd give him ideas and stuff like that, and then he would, you know, uh, say, "How about this?" or "How about that?" And you know, we literally we almost had our own little show within a show. The you know, it was like the Al and Steve show uh, back during that time, and uh, you know, it was it was so much fun because you know, Steve was the perfect straight man. Because sometimes I don't think he really, I don't think he really got it. Sometimes I mean, you know, we always laughed because you know, he would for, for legitimately would be we'd be in the car and well, I'd be explaining what was gonna happen and he'd go, Well, why wouldn't I just, you know, knock the guy out? I'm like, Well because, you know, that's it's fake. I mean, because 'cause we're not gonna do that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> that wouldn't be funny. <laughs> It'd be more funny to watch you get upset. <laughs> um Well I don't get it. Well just trust me, just just stay here, you know. Like when we went to do the uh, uh um where he was doing stand-up routine at the old folks' home, and, and, you know, he's reading them, and the first time he reads the jokes, he's like, these jokes were horrible. It's like, you know, it's it's like, that's the idea. You're you're not supposed to be good. And he just didn't seem to get it at first that, you know, that was the point, is that he was supposed to be bad, that, you know, that they were supposed to be really drunk, which made it even funnier. Mm.
1: Okay, uh, a couple weeks ago, I I completed the 2008 shoot interview you did with RF Video, and you you said that you were not happy with with um, the outcome from King of the Ring '98, your match. Um, now I loved the finish. I loved it. It was brilliant. Putting the, yes, the, the head on the head and shoulders. It it was brilliant. Uh, from a from a comedic standpoint, but it was bad for business at that time for you. Yeah, um, yeah
0: it was bad business, who, and I should have known better.
1: Who who booked the finish? Uh, I,
0: you know, it was something like, you know, Brian Christopher and Jerry Lawler had made the suggestion or whatever, and you know, and I foolishly agreed to it. You know, it was it was the wrong thing to do. I mean, it really was not the right thing to do, and and I didn't work that match correctly either. I mean, I should have been working that match like I was trying to tag the head you know, like it was really my partner to really get the gimmick across and, uh, which I can do and could do, but I just didn't do that night because I just didn't have the proper understanding. Do you, do you know what I mean? And, you know, it, 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 this, and it, it gets the ball. you only get one chance to, to make a first impression, really paint a certain picture. And that, that, that hurt me. That was not, that wasn't smart. I mean, it was, you know, funny and, you know, it, it was, was very uh, very I mean, humorous. Yeah, brilliant. it was great. It was great, Bad. but at the same time, it was the wrong thing to do business-wise. Sword, just, yeah, yeah just, it was not the right thing to do. It's like, you know, like back again to the best match on the card. I mean, I, and I tell guys this all the time. You know, you get a dark match with, uh, you know, and they want to take a look at you. So, you know, they book you with Fanaki, which is, this is no disparagement against Fanaki. Yeah, I always have to say this because yeah. I don't want anybody... I don't want to throw anybody, you know, have anybody go, go around, and oh, well, I was, you know, burying everybody. I don't bury anybody. I honestly don't. I I want everybody to succeed. I genuinely don't care, you know, who does but Somebody doing better does not make me do worse, and somebody doing worse doesn't make me do better. So I, I, you know, I sincerely, whenever somebody succeeds, I go, I'm very happy for them. So, you know, that being said, because I don't want anybody to try and take out of context what I'm saying, you know, people book you know, we all know how Fanaki is booked. Well, when a guy shows up and they book against Funaki, and you're thinking when you go out there, I'm gonna have the best match on the show. I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna do everything I can to have the best match on your show, well that's great. Okay? But you know you wanna really the ultimately what you wanna do is you wanna work, you know, on top. You wanna to, you wanna be the heavyweight champion. So when you go out there the first night and you're working with Fanaki and you're going out there and having that match that yeah, you know, it's the best match on the show. Have you have you either one shown everybody that now you're on Funaki's level, or two, and had the best match on the show, or two? Have you really went out there and what, did what you're supposed to do, which is look like you could be a contender for the heavyweight title? Because those us face facts, uh, you know, if Triple H uh, or even John Cena were to go work with Funaki, uh, they'd make Funaki look pretty good, but they'd still look like they were the World Heavyweight Champion working with Fanaki. They would look like they were on the top of the food chain and that Fanaki was on the bottom. And, again, that's not putting Fanaki down. That's how they book it. So uh, you go out there and you have the best match on the show. You bl- blow the roof off the place. But you, now you look like you aren't, You know Fanaki looks as good as you and you look as good as Fanaki, which means that you don't look as good as John Cena or Triple H. So now are you ever going to get that chance to work with John Cena or Triple H? Probably not. You know, and, and if you do, it's only because you've now smartened up and you've now done everything you can to repair the very mistake you made, which was the mistake I made by when I went back, allowing them to put the head and shoulders bottle in the head. That was dumb. And it was my own fault. I should have known better.
1: Hmm. Well, you mentioned Funaki and, and guys that come in for, for tryouts or whatever, and they, they look up on the board and they see, oh, shit, I'm working with Funaki. You know that's great. The guys he's a understand. he's a hell of a hand. He's the Brooklyn Brawler now.
0: Yeah, Back but the and, there, there was, and there was nothing yeah, wrong with it. there's no disrespect with being the Brooklyn brawler of the day. Oh, the, of the, there was a Johnny the, before Brooklyn Brawler was a Johnny Rods and the reason that they were those guys are there is because they take a look at you and they go, Well, if this guy can't have a good match with Finaki and meaning Look like what he needs to look like, and do the business he can do. Because Fanaki's going to do whatever he can to help you. You can't do that. Then how the hell do they expect that you're going to be able to do it with anybody else? You know. And the same with Brooklyn Brawler. If you can't go out there and look like what you're supposed to look like, and do the business you're supposed to do with Brooklyn Brawler, brother, then we ain't going to invest three hundred and sixty thousand dollars giving you a six-minute match on TV. And uh, the same with Johnny Rods, and on down the list. You know that they're not looking to see if you're going to have the best match on the show. They're looking to see if you can look like a star. They're looking, they're trying to see if you're going to go out there and you're going to look like a future heavyweight champion, or you're going to go out there and look like you're now on Punaki's level. Does that make sense? Have,
1: uh, oh, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. And uh, the reason I bring the point up again is uh, a friend of mine. In '98, he, he had a dark match up here in San Jose, and it was a tryout. It was he was on the board against Fanaki, and you know he went out. It was a decent match, um, and then afterwards, you know we were we were driving home, and you know and I asked him, I said Mikey, you know what what's going on here? You know what what happened? You know I'm all, you know you could have, you know done so much better. You know had a better match. They just didn't click or something, and and he said, well I wanted to go out there, you know and try to knock their socks off. I said, brother, it's a dark match. It's a tryout. It was, it's a tryout. You're supposed to show them what you can do, but not overstep your bounds.
0: So no, no, no. Get
1: a, a good idea. It's
0: a tryout. It's a tryout. And that means right. that they want to see if you look like a star. Not what you can do. I, they don't give two shits what you can do. They don't care what you can do or can't do. do can you look like a star that will sell tickets? That's what they care about. And if you, can't, if, you don't, if you don't impress them and, go, and they go, holy, you know, this guy's not a very good wrestler, but wrestlers don't make money. Workers make money. And if they go, wow, this guy's not a very good wrestler, but God damn, this guy, he has got it. He's a star. He, we can make money with him. Well, then guess what gonna, what's going to happen? You're going to get hired. You go out there and show them you're a great wrestler and that you can have a really good match, you're probably not going to get hired. And that's the mistake that, you know, that was the mistake like I made that night. Your friend made the same mistake. It's not about having a good match. Showing them what you can do. They don't care what you can do. Uh, And to be honest with you, uh, they shouldn't because, uh, you know, do you know the proper way to put a hammerlock on? Probably not. And guess what? 99% of the audience doesn't either. Uh, They probably not even had a hammerlock put on them unless, of course, they've been involved in a dis- domestic dispute because it's allowed the police to be called. Um, but otherwise, they probably never had a hammerlock put on them, and they probably never put a hammerlock on somebody. And since that's the case, they don't know when you're doing it right and when you're doing it wrong. All they know is that you did it at the right time for the right reason to get them to buy into what you're selling so that then they can believe even more so that then they will pop, truly pop, have an emotional response at the end. That will make them pay to want, make them pay to see you again. And if you can't do that, then your opportunities, your chances to get three hundred sixty thousand dollars for a six minute match, or sixty grand for a one minute promo, are going to be nil, because it costs so much for them to give you that chance and that opportunity.
1: I'm, I'm going through. Through these results and, and I've gotten to uh, where you were teaming with Marty um, Uh-huh. Wh- what did what, you think of Marty um, as, as a teammate
0: Marty was great Marty very very talented uh, incredibly talented uh, guy um, you know Marty had a lot of demons, uh, but that the real mistake was that we were on two separate pages you know Marty didn't want to you know do the uh, do the gimmick. Uh, kind of the way I had understood it, and you know, I took it and ran with it, and you know, made it as I thought we were supposed to be kind of goofy and you know, uh, over the top. And uh, and you know, in in both of our defense, Marty and I's defense, um, you know, nothing is older than yesterday's news, and uh, nothing tells you that it quicker that it's yesterday's news faster than to put new in front of it you can put new in front of anything and it just, it's the pretty much, you know, there are exceptions to the rule, but that's pretty much the nail in the coffin right there, you know, and, uh, but it, you know, it made it, made it worse when, you know, um, you know, Marty had one thing and I had another, and that was probably also due to my, uh, I would imagine probably my own inexperience again, or uh, not quite thoroughly understanding what I really needed to understand.
1: At that time, when, when you guys were teaming, there were so many great teams. Uh, you had yes. Owen and the Bulldog who were the champs. Um, Doug Furness and Phil Lafon. I yeah. don't think that, that they got the, the proper due by, by American fans. Um, what, what, what do you think of Doug and Phil as a team and outside of the ring? Oh,
0: They were both great guys inside and outside the ring. Especially, you know, Doug you know, is practically a saint. Uh, you know, Phil was was a great guy too. Really good, really good. Both of them really good people outside of the ring. And you know, they they again, you know, they spent a lot of time in Japan. And you know, uh, you know, I, I don't think they were like you said they were quite given their due at that time. But again, they were they had a completely different mindset in how they approached things. And uh, you know, it doesn't that's it's you know. They they had the, the tools. They were very capable physically and talented-wise. It's just that, that I don't think it was uh, – they just want to – literally, and I don't know how else to explain it because I've explained – I, I try to explain it to people, but, um, you know, booking or whatever, a territory and stuff like that, it literally is like, you know, putting together a picture puzzle and you don't have the lid with the picture on the box, and so you've you, you got a general idea of the picture you want to do. The problem is the picture is constantly changing and evolving all at the same time, not to mention while you're trying to put the picture together, you don't have any edge pieces either to kind of give you an outline of what you want. So you just pick and choose, and, you know, you try, and you really it comes down to, um, you know, it, it being a matter of this piece this piece of the puzzle, Phil and Doug, uh, doing the exact business that you imagined in your mind, uh, coming across, feeling a certain way, giving that certain impression uh, 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 so that they can continue to be that piece of the puzzle that fits so that you can end up making that ultimately that picture that you're really trying to make. And I don't think they ever quite did it. Do you know what I mean? And and at the same time, I think sometimes, too, Jim Ross saw something in people sometimes, and then, then we get there, and I don't think Vince quite saw it, because Vince doesn't see you until you're working for him. He don't watch nothing else, and he don't watch tapes. He don't watch... He, he watches you in his ring, and if you don't match up with his vision, then, you know, and he don't quite get you or get what you're doing, then, you know, then you've got to kind of reinvent yourself, and if you don't reinvent yourself, then... You know you're not gonna continue to get those opportunities
1: mhm yeah they were they were leaps and bounds above you know pretty much anything that was that was on t v with the exception of uh you and Marty and uh the body Donnas they were just you know any combination of the three teams you knew you were going to get something good um i'm I'm really surprised that that they weren't really pushed or actually I think that maybe turning them heel and putting them with Cornette would have been, would have worked for them. That's possible. Do you think that would have clicked maybe?
0: It might have, yeah. If, you know, if if Cornette would have given them direction and, you know, and they could have uh, gotten and understood how to, to, you know, to, to do what it was that, you know, Vince was trying to get them to do at that time, you know, maybe it would have. I, you know, I don't know. You know, like I said, there's a there are a lot of factors that play into it. A lot of it is, you know, uh, the wrestler's mistakes. A lot of it is also Vince's perception, and then it's a lot of the other wrestlers creating a perception for Vince. You know, leading his perception of of you too. You know, because let's let's not underplay the the politics of it all either. But uh, you know, ultimately, the one thing I have learned is that once you step in between the ropes, it's solely your responsibility to accomplish whatever business needs to be done on that ring to that night and uh, and get it done the way that it's, you know, thought of. And uh, nobody can do anything to really help you once you step through the ropes. And honestly, it comes right down to it. Nobody can really do anything to really hinder you either. I mean, yeah, they can, they can lay out on you and, deadweight you and not really put you over, but you know, to be honest with you, you can pretty much get yourself over no matter what. I mean, you can see guys that do it all the time. Uh regardless of what the politics have been played or what games guys play with each other. Uh you can still see guys get themselves over or still get their heat. And you know, keep in mind that there are always every there's never just a wrestling match put on. It's never done that way. You always have to conduct one of three forms of business. Uh, you know, you either got to go out there and make the audience believe in you, um, or you got to go out there as a heel and get heat, or you got to go out there in a baby, as a baby face and get over. You, get, you put a baby face over so that eventually you can have that baby face help another heel get heat so that you can put more heat on that heel so that he can help another baby face get over stronger. So you can get that baby face over stronger so that he can help put more heat on another heel so that you can eventually have that heel, pay that heat off by putting another baby face over even stronger than that. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. There is nothing else done in wrestling other than those three things. It's never done just for, uh, unless they will have a match. Every time you go to the ring, whether it's a house show, a spot show, or a TV show, it's done to do one of those three pieces of business. No, no doubt about it. And if you don't do those three pieces of business, guess what? You're probably not going to get an opportunity to do many more of them. mm.
1: Pretty
0: cut and dry, kids. It, it is. I mean, you know, everybody would like to believe it's something else or, oh, I did something wrong or I have heat for this person or that person. And you got to understand the wrestling business is not a verbal business, you know. It's not like they talk to you and they explain all this to you. They never have and they never will. You've got to know in yourself what it is that you're supposed to be going out there and trying to do for business to sell tickets. And if you don't, well, guess what? You're gonna wander. You're gonna come back, and they're not. They're just gonna say th- thank you, and you're gonna be backstage wandering around for the next two or three months, not understanding or not knowing why you're no longer on TV, and they're not gonna tell you. You're gonna think you had the best match on the show, but yet you're not working anymore, and you're gonna thinking that oh, they're trying to hold me back, they're trying to hold me down, or, or you know, and the fans will be telling you that you're underutilized. Brother, every time you go to the ring, you're being utilized. How could you not be utilized? So how could you ever be underutilized and take it from somebody who used to get the underutilized award every year to where they were almost going to make it the Alston Memorial Award? I can tell you better than anybody else. You, they, that's insane. They never underutilize anybody. They try to utilize everybody to some degree, some way, so they can make money.
1: Anyway. Wow. It. There you go. <laughs> Well, we're going to, uh, we're going to go back to uh, your second run in ECW. Um yes. as far as the uh the the stuff you did on TV and whatnot, um how in okay, how instrumental was Paul E? Did he just say this is the direction and you ran with it? Oh. No. Or here's exactly what just,
0: happened. Uh right. I tried to quit WWE at the time cuz I was so frustrated. Um Bruce Pritchard glowed over my contract to kind of teach me a lesson uh, from what I, what I, you know, from what I understand. Um, and I knew at that point in time that I had to get out of there um, because of, you know, at the time I didn't realize, but they were my own mistakes. Um, I had to get out of there and go someplace else to get myself over. I had to get myself over to where, you know, either Paulie would pay to keep me, Vince would pay to get me back, or Eric Bischoff would pay to take me away. So, uh, you know, luckily Chris Candido, God bless him, was, you know, involved with Paulie at the time and talked Paulie. I think, you know, I'm assuming, into going to Vince and talking to Vince and getting me put on loan basically because I was still under contract uh, to ECW. And uh, I went there with the complete idea that I was going to get myself over. I had to. And uh, I tried everything, and finally one night, to the grace of God, I found a styrofoam head in the back, and, uh, you know, I won't bore everybody with the details, but, you know, I started carrying it in the ring and talking to it, and it started getting over. And at the time, when I first started carrying it, you know, the only thing Paulie would tell me is, I hate your manager. Uh, But he never stopped me from doing it. Uh, And then one night... He finally came to me and goes, you're going to be the next cult babyface. And I'm like, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, the next night I was supposed to do something with Sandman at at the ECW arena to, you know, I guess get a rub from Sandman. And uh, I ended up wrestling Paul Diamond. And uh, Paul gave me a gourd buster that dislocated my shoulder, which was actually very fortuitous because I was out for like two weeks. And I couldn't wrestle. And again, uh, thanks to Chris Candido, Uh, I really believe Chris talked, because I know, you know, even Taz had mentioned that they had the production meeting that day for the November to Remember pay-per-view, and that Chris had put in there for me to do a promo vignette backstage with the head. And that was where it really took off, was that was what really got it over, was that that initial pre-tape of me in the back in the locker room screaming and arguing with the head while there were other people just sitting around acting like, you know, everything else was normal, but the only thing that was crazy was me talking to a plastic head and arguing with it. And thank God that it was, that, you know, that that's all it was, was just a vignette and that I didn't get to wrestle because if I'd have gotten to wrestle, I'd have probably screwed it up and wouldn't have gotten over near like I did, but just simply doing the vignettes. Uh, because the vignettes so, got me over more than than anything else
1: that vignette was brilliant that it was just brilliant where where the head's telling you you know <laughs> about you being hurt and shouldn't have told him you were hurt and all oh that's just just amazing where Where you took an inanimate object and made it an actual character, and I'll be honest, before that, I enjoyed your work, okay. But then that promo, I fell in love. And no, nope, I'm straight, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, <Okay. laughs> I, I fell in love with uh, with with you and the character, and then it was just on. And you know, still, some of the fondest memories were of mine were from that ECW run, and it's yeah. just just amazing. And it, it's not like it, it came from you know a booking meeting or you know or or you know, some uh, Hollywood writer's idea. It just happened. That's, yeah, and what's that's missing now.
0: That's the you best know, stuff be in wrestling. wrestling. Yeah, that's the best stuff in wrestling is that it just, you know, the magic of wrestling is that it really, it just happens. I mean, nobody told me. They just said, hey, you got a promo with the head. And I just went, okay. And, you know, and then you just do it. I mean, it's just like Steve Austin or, you know, I can go on down the list of guys that, Have really made, you know, Rock was not planned. Uh, You know, that just happened. Uh, Steve Austin was not planned. That was just, that just, you know, that just, it's those guys, you know, those moments, those that happen in wrestling and they only happen in wrestling because of wrestlers. Um, And that's not to put down, you know, writers or anything like that. I mean, you know, I'm sure that, you know, writers are a creative part of the process, but really, it's the wrestler's business, and it's the wrestler who's responsible. And if the wrestlers don't, so many of the wrestlers, unfortunately nowadays, look at it. They they the term fired. How can you get fired? Well, you never really have a job. You, you know, Vince tells everybody you, you're you be given an opportunity. And I swear to God, he's you know when I used to listen to him in the you know uh, meetings, saying stuff like, that, I'm like, you're so full of shit, but he's the, he's telling the truth it's you're just simply getting an opportunity uh every time you go to the ring you have an opportunity it's you know and and um you know how so how could you get fired how can you get fired from an opportunity it's impossible and these guys are you know playing it safe um and i did the same thing you go out there and you play it safe and you do what you do what you're told and you know not what you think or what you feel in your gut um because you just don't you don't want any heat, you don't want to cause any problems and heaven forbid you get fired. You know? Uh but that never gives you the chance to take advantage of the amazing opportunity that you really have.
1: Well, now now the job squad, this was a, a behind the scenes, this was a backstage thing with the boys. Um what what or whose idea was it to take that that idea? From behind behind the uh the curtain and bring it out front. Who whose idea was that?
0: Uh, Vince Russo. Vince Russo, you know, uh really loved the T shirts and the idea of it and uh you know, uh wanted to put it in front of the audience and stuff. All the underdogs banding together, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff. Um I am actually in need of a new job squad shirt. My mine's pretty pretty worn and ragged. Well, for everybody out there, I'm starting to make
0: them again, so um, the job go. squad that's, always continues to live on. So
1: that that's that's what I'm trying to get at, Al. Uh, let's let's plug the shirts. Um, how are you going How are people gonna be able to get a hold of those things?
0: Well, I'll be in Chicago at the Wizard World convention uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday this coming this week. And I'll have the shirts there, and I'll have them, of course, at shows. And then here in the near future, I'm going to uh, start up another uh, job squad website because it was it was really popular before I went to WWE, and and uh, start selling the uniforms of the job squad yet again. So, and you don't have to be a wrestler to be part of the job squad. You just have to be, you know, one of those guys that uh, feels like he's been jobbed out. You know that, you know, um, and the the. One motto I always say is, is that, you know, other people have even quoted, and that is, that, you know, pin me, pay me. There you know, go. Just is an ass isn't is part your, of our JLB description.
1: Favorite saying? Is that your favorite saying that's been on the back of the shirts?
0: Pin me, pay me, yeah. 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 That okay. pretty much sums it up. You know, you can pretty much you can say whatever you want. And, you know, the job squad was a, started out as a joke uh, it Was about a lot of guys because a lot of guys thought, you know, they were really winning. And you know, they kind of forget. Uh, they kind of forgot why it is that we really shake each other's hand. And the reason we really shake each other's hands is because we really all need each other. You can't. Nobody can be anything or do anything in this business by themselves. You know, you're not. You can't be the main event without the opening match, and so you should thank the opening match. And you can't be the opening match without the main event, and so you should thank the open, You know, the main event, and you know, and everything in between. You can't be a winner if one. You know, you know another guy is not willing to to put you over or to lose, you know, you know, so your idea that now you're a star and that you're now bigger than everybody else in the locker room is just a crock. Uh, don't fool yourself. You know, um, you know, I always joke that the the most powerful guy in wrestling at that time was Barry Horowitz and everybody's like, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I would say, uh, you know, Undertaker goes out there and tombstones Barry and Barry gets up and dusts his hair off and walks out. Well, who had the most power in that
1: match? You know, you
0: go, you know, so, you know, it's not, you know, wrestling's not, you know, uh, a lot of guys like to think when they're on top that it's, you know, it's, I always laugh because it's, you know, it's real when I win and it's fake when I lose. You know, that's the attitude these guys have. And, uh, you know, brother, it ain't real no matter what. It's, it's a work and we're working the audience. We're not working each other. We're not trying, you know, we're not marks unless you're a mark for yourself. And, uh, you know, don't buy into your own BS. Don't believe, you know, you gotta fit, you gotta have a portion of you that believes so that when you go to the ring, the audience believes, but not to the point where you're in the back trying to get us to believe it too. I mean, pump the brakes. You ain't all that, you know? Yeah. You're the guy that, you know, we're all trying to, we're all trying to put over right now. We're all trying to put you over so that we can all draw money because if we don't put you over, cause for some reason, just lightning in a bottle, you're the thing that's drawing money right now, so we're gonna do everything we can to help you draw money. Because guess what? The more money you draw, the more money we all make, dummy. Not just you. The rest of us make money too. So why, you know, would we not do everything we could to put over Steve Austin? Gee, money Christmas, that'd be stupid. That'd be bad business. So we're gonna do everything we can to put Steve Austin over. Not just Steve Austin's gonna do everything he can to get over. All the everybody in the locker room's gonna do everything they can to put him over. And so that means that, you know, Steve ain't a star by himself. Do you understand? Steve's a star, Rock's a star, but they ain't stars by themselves because it takes the rest of the locker room to be willing to put them over to get them to be stars. And I should always say thank you.
1: So um, are you you still training guys at all? Uh,
0: I go around and do seminars on the independents, which have been a lot of fun. Uh, but I don't have an actual school right now. Uh, you know, down the road in the future, I believe I'll probably open up another school and, and start training people again. I enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, I I really believe it's uh, my way of giving back to the business that has allowed me to support my family for 26 years. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, reacquaint people with, with, you know, the younger talent with things that, that, are really, that really matter, that are really important. And uh because I I really believe that there are certain things, certain aspects of the wrestling business that are that have always been there. You know, you're not reinventing the wheel. It's it's already round and it rolls just fine. Um and I think the more that people try to stop reinventing the wheel, the more it'll the better it'll do. The more it'll roll. And uh um, you know, I think that uh uh you know, it gives me a chance to help pass along Uh, you know stuff that needs to be passed along because if it's not passed along and the talent these days don't know it then you know it's going to then the wrestling business is going to change and when it changes it's going to cease to exist it's going to go away boy wouldn't that be a shame you know would be uh, other than jazz the one actual true American art form other than jazz uh, because wrestling is an art form The true American art form other than jazz now ceases to exist because those people within the very business itself don't care enough to pass it on to the next generation. So, you know, uh, when I uh, train guys and, you know, run a school, it's it's my chance to get back to the business by making sure they really know things like what we've talked about here. You know, it sounds silly, but, you know, it's so important that, you know, the young talent these days don't focus on showing up at the building and having the best match on the show, but showing up at the building and having the match that sells the most tickets. That's a big, big, big difference. It's a nine day difference in thought process that no longer exists and uh you know, needs to be.
1: Now, I I I put you in in I categorize you in a group with others. Um, there's Jesse Hernandez in Southern California who's teaching his students properly. There's Michael Modest who has done a lot of training up here in Northern California. There's Buddy Wayne up in in Seattle area where there are guys that are, that are teaching the business properly and I think that it's very important at this point in time that guys learn correctly because very soon I have the feeling that um, the territorial system will be coming back but in a limited uh, more of a limited capacity where the, the, the territorial w- system
0: could always come back. Man. It, 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 you know why the territories went away? It's because there was no, there were, uh, we have a saying in business. You can put a pair of boots and a pair of trunks on anybody and call them a wrestler. Uh, you can't always put a pair of boots and a pair of trunks on somebody and call them a worker. <clears throat> and unfortunately, you know, Vince took all the workers and that's why he made all the money because his locker room was full of workers. And the territories were left with wrestlers, you know, guys that were, they were talented. Uh, and that, you know, that's not a disparagement on any of them. They were all very talented. They just didn't have the seasoning or the polish or the real experience, the understanding of what it was that they were really trying to do. Um, they and, did,
1: and, with, with Vince.
0: and it's gotten, it's gotten worse. You know, the, there are tons of heads. Uh, there are tons of bodies out there, tons of bodies, uh, but there are no heads. And if there were more, uh, more guys who dedicated themselves to uh, selling tickets uh, and not having the best match, you'd have more places running shows. Think about it. Your local independent promoter runs a show. Every guy on the card, if you go ask him, do a poll. Uh, ten matches, ten out of ten matches, all the guys will say, I showed up tonight to have the best match on the show. I was going to steal the show. Not a one will say anything about selling tickets. Now, if they all showed up to sell the most tickets, and they now dedicated themselves to do that, uh, your independent promoters running running uh, Town A, and Town A starts drawing money. Oh, son of a bitch. He starts selling tickets, and, and and the building's no longer big enough, so he now has got to get a bigger building. Well, now he's making enough money to where he can run Town B. He starts running Town A and Town B, and because the wrestlers are now more worried about selling tickets and making money, and they are on just having what a, a fan on a website considers the best match possible. Now they have more fans showing up at the building and therefore more money that the, the promoter can now reinvest and run A, B, and now C. So now they're working three times a month. They're now getting three times the experience. Not to mention there are other promoters that now realize these guys can wrestle, can actually work and draw money. And so they, they start booking them. So now the guys start working more and getting even more experience in front of a live audience, drawing money, not wrestling, working. And they continue to do so, and they continue to get more work, and then next thing you know, shazam! We start having guys running almost like a territory where they're running two or three shows a week uh, every month and then building from there. you know, we that's how I ran it here in OVW when we were running the developmental system. And we ran 186 shows last year. 186 shows. Where else in the United States, what other company ran 186 shows? And they had, we had an average attendance of about 3,000, 3,500 people a month, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is when you consider that after a, after a year's time, it, it was almost 50,000 people that these guys got experience in front of on a weekly basis for a year
1: What's the the interesting number Al is the people that were counted there that are repeat offenders the repeat business is important
0: absolutely any and idiot, it, any
1: idiot can go out there and pop a 2000 person house but it takes a real good promoter to draw 1500 every month
0: well and it, and it grew it was continuing to grow you understand and mm-hmm. you know People, you know, don't fool yourselves, you know, anybody that's listening independently, listening and go, oh, well, that's because you guys have TV. Yeah, we did have TV, and that does play a factor. But, you know, the most important form of advertising that even Hollywood kills for and Madison Avenue and Fortune 500 companies kill for, it's called word of mouth. There's nothing that stops word of mouth. If you have 20 people show up at your show and you do everything you can to make them pay to see you again not only will they pay to see you but they'll go tell all their friends and family and you'll probably get 10 or 15 more now you've got 35 the next month and 35 people you do everything you can to convince them to come back and pay to see you again and they leave out of there on an emotional high and they go tell more people and now those 35 people bring in 10 or 15 more and now you're working in front of 50 or 60 and yeah, it doesn't sound like big numbers, but how do you think you eventually get to where you sell the whole building out? That's how you do it.
1: There you go. Now, what we're going to do is we're going on uh, my show. We're going to do uh, we're going to test the Al Snow theory um, okay. on July on July about uh, uh, the boys in the back, whether they're they're there to make money or to to build things or to have a great match. Um, July 5th, up here in San Francisco, Fog City will be debuting at the Keysar Auditorium. Um, I will be in the house. And what I am going to do is I'm going to go backstage and I'm going to speak to ten different guys and ask them that question.
0: Just ask them, did you show up tonight to have the best match on the show? And watch how many of them tell you yes.
1: And I'm going to give honest numbers on Tuesday, July 8th, on my show I will give honest numbers and I will solidify the al snow theory and I, I tell you to it's to not a theory study. listen
0: it's not a theory it's not a subject this is not subjective it's not subjective to my opinion okay i can tell you directly from my conversations from all over from all over north america from canada to you know uh, town. i was just in edmonton and asked guys, all, all those guys there, how many of you showed up to have the best match on the show? Every hand went up. I, I went to you know, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and a couple guys asked me, you know, what did you think of my match, blah, blah, blah. I got into the same discussion, and I said, okay, guys, did you show up here to have the best match on the show? huh. Oh, well, yeah, sure did. I was in South Carolina. Asked guys there, how, how many of you showed up here to have the best match on the show? Every hand went up. I was out in California. How many of you wanted to have the best match on the show? Every hand went up. I was here in Kentucky. How many of you wanted to have the best match on the show? Every hand went up. Go to Ring of Honor. Yeah. How many of you had the best match on the show? Uh, every hand went up. Do you understand? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a it's not a theory. That is the prevalent in, in WWE, Ring of Honor, TNA, every independent promotion. Every guy out there now wants to have the best match on this show. And having the best match on the show ain't the match that necessarily sells the most tickets.
1: There you go. But like like I said, the July fifth, I will ask ten random random guys in the back, yes, please and do. I will come on the show on the eighth, and I will give honest answers. I'm not going to tell you who am I speaking to, or answers oh, don't, don't need to know that. It, yeah. That's not important. I just want and it's to
0: It's not a, no, a sure. discouragement again on them either. It's it's. You know, it's just a lack of an understanding of what it is that they're really supposed to be out there trying to do, their job. There you go. You understand? A wrestler's job is not to have a great match. A professional wrestler's job is not to entertain you, the audience. A professional wrestler's job is to convince you to part with your money to see him as many times as possible. That's a professional wrestler's job he doesn't do that job. Then why don't I just go put a pair of boots and a pair of trunks on a, on a, another athlete and just have him go out there and do it.
1: Very good point. Uh,
0: uh, you know, I could ask guys that are out there listening right now. Um, cause most of them, most of the guys probably did the same thing. Uh, you guys probably watched tapes and you, you wrestled in your backyard before you ever got in the ring. You probably were doing moves that you now do in the ring. Um, and there are kids out there that are doing it right now. Not that I can donate, because that's probably not the smartest thing to do. But uh, uh, everybody that's listening, what separates you from that 16-year-old kid that can probably do all your moves and probably physically do them better than you? Uh, you name the move, and he can probably pull it off even better. I know what should separate you from him, but do you know what should separate you from him? And if you don't, that's what you're missing.
1: Through all of your travels. Yeah. Who what what uh what professional wrestler captivated you as far as a storyteller in the ring?
0: Oh gosh. Uh guys like uh uh Tommy Rich
1: and oh, Buzz Soy. Why?
0: why God? Mm-hmm. You know, Tommy Rich was Tommy Rich really does not get the credit he's due. He's probably one of the greatest workers ever in the business. Bar none. I agree. Uh, he was the na- first national babyface. You know, he could have been Hulk Hogan if he could have kept his own, you know, demons under control. Uh, you know, he was that good. But not only was he that good, but uh, a babyface. He could go and turn himself heel and could be even and get so much heat as a heel. Uh, Ricky Morton, you know, incredible, credible babyface, but also an amazing heel. Uh, you know, Jerry Lawler, the more I'm in this business, the longer I've been around, the more I come to appreciate just how amazingly talented Jerry Lawler is. You know, think about this. You know, Jerry Lawler was the go-to guy in WWE. Whenever Vince needs somebody for to work with and to get him over or whatever, who's he turned to? Jerry Lawler. Or they get some heat. Jerry Lawler. And not to not to mention... I think, uh, to put this in perspective, back in the day, okay, this was the way that the business used to work when you were in the territories. You had your run in the territory, and then you, you left. You moved. You went to another territory. You had your run. That was it. You were done. Jerry Lawler stayed in Memphis for years. and not just stayed there and wore out his welcome. He stayed there and continued to be a draw. And guys like him and Bill Dundee, who never gets mentioned, or Dutch Mantell, Those guys were able to to, to sell out the Memphis Coliseum not once a month, every single week. For I think it was like four or five years they sold out that Memphis Coliseum, every week. You must know what you're doing to be able to keep yourself. Yeah, think about that. Ole and Gene Anderson, as much as at one point I despised that, you know, bitter prick, Ole Anderson bought a house in North Carolina, in Charlotte, he never bought a house back in those days and stayed in the same territory. And he was a heel that, that continually got heat and that, that continually people paid to see get beat. Uh, I mean, think about it. And, they, they, you know, and, and trust me, promoters are not charitable people. If you don't draw, if you don't sell tickets, then, you know, especially back then, they, you didn't draw. You didn't, you didn't either draw money be the reason that their money was being drawn and or you didn't help draw the money, be of assistance to draw the money, you didn't get to work. You went away. They didn't, couldn't afford to keep you. And the rest of the boys didn't want you to because it wasn't like they were going to go off and do something else for a living. That was all they could do to feed their families. So, you know, they did everything they could to, to put asses in the seats. And think about, you know, guys like Jerry Lawler, uh, you know, Tommy Rich, uh, you know uh, Bruno San Martino, he doesn't get you know the credit either, selling out places left and right. You know, I mean, man, these guys, Dusty Rhodes, what, well, what, how charismatic, and was he a great technical wrestler? You know, nope. a, a name that doesn't get a name that doesn't get really mentioned. Um, that you know, and probably wasn't a really great heel because he he got more over as a baby. <laughs> You know, he'd get over as a baby face, but could get heat. And that kind of rock patterned himself after. And that's Austin Idol. Iron Mike McCord, you know. I mean, uh, the, the original Sheik, the original Sheik was so believable that after I had been in the business for probably uh, three or four years, I still was scared of him when he came in the locker room, you know. He was not the biggest guy in the world, but when he came in the arena, play, people panicked because he was so believable. You didn't doubt. You didn't question, you know. And, would and, you, and, and that, come on, let's the, face facts. Would you say the let's,
1: original Sheik was yes. the greatest heel ever?
0: I don't know if he was the greatest heel ever, but he was an amazing heel. That's for sure. Yeah. He was a believable heel. He was, he was scary, you know. He was, and that's why people paid to see him because they were really scared of him. And they wanted to see the baby face beat him because he was scary. Um. You know, let's face facts. I mean, let's not be stupid uh, because there are a lot of stupid people who think they know a lot about the wrestling business that they really don't, including the wrestlers. When's the last time that people actually believed that wrestling was real? And then what I mean by real is a competitive situation. I'll tell you when. That was back when the newspapers were covering it as an actual sporting event. That was probably, I think, 1928 or 30, somewhere in that range. So Vince McMahon didn't smarten everybody up. Everybody was already smartened up, but nobody. Everybody still continued to show up because they wanted to believe. It's just like you going to see a movie or watching Chris Angel on TV. You don't really think he's doing magic, but you want to believe so you can be entertained. And wrestling is the same damn thing and has been for probably 50 or 60 years. But you could believe and you could buy into a guy like Jerry Lawler or Tommy Rich or, or. Uh, you know Dusty Rhodes or Wrestling Two, Mr. Wrestling Two, or you know Oli Oli Anderson. How believable was that guy? You know, uh, um, you know Robert Gibson, um, Austin Idol. Uh, I mean, I could go on down a list of you know Terry Funk, uh, you know Harley Race. That they're so believable. That and it, what I mean by so believable is that it was easy. It made it easy for you while you were there to believe and even at some nights leave the building kind of questioning kind of doubting wondering well, man I know it's not real, but God do those two guys I think they were trying to kill each other, you know what I mean and uh uh you know God, how much talent does it take to get you know get people that are smart to the, you know they were smart they they were they know they everybody knew it was not a you know competitive situation that's really what you're trying to work them on you're not trying to work them on anything else. You're trying to work them into believing that winning and losing really matter, and the, and everybody knew it, and it didn't because it wasn't covered like baseball or boxing or football or be- basketball. It was just it wasn't treated like that because it wasn't. It wasn't those things. So they all knew that, but they all still showed up. They all wanted to believe.
1: Well, you you mentioned. You mentioned Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer. Now, yeah. uh, Buzz Sawyer was Tommy Rich's foil. Yes. Who in in your career? Who was your foil? That one guy that just kept sticking it to you, and you could never just finish it.
0: I. It was probably Sabu there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a really you know for had a, a really long run. that I think kind of helped put it, put both of us on the map. But it really helped me, you know, at the time, because for years I was known as the best kept secret in wrestling, you know, for and, uh, you know, it was that's a compliment for a while. But then, you know, after a while, it's like, hey, uh, let's go tell the secret. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I had we had had that first match uh, completely by accident uh, on a show for this guy named Joe Lake, who. Booked a bunch of guys, and of course, didn't have the money to pay any of them. And uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Sabu's opponent didn't show up that night. I'd already worked uh, against Dan Severin, you know, pro wrestling style matches, Shinobi, to kind of help carry him through, and have, help him have a good match. And you know, I was under a mask. And you know, uh, Phyllis Lee, God lover, uh suggested to Sabu that you know, you know, he didn't have an opponent. Why not work with me and? I was like, I don't want to make him work twice, especially you know we're not getting paid. And I said, look, I, I just love to work. I'll work with you, and we went and worked, and that was it. You know, we that was the, where you know all of a sudden now, wow, where's he been? And you know, got me noticed, and then we were attached at the hip. You know, we were kind of married for a long time. A lot of people wanted to book the two of us against each other.
1: Well, you you and you and Sabu, I don't remember what belt it was for. But you guys had a ladder match. Um, yes. Any any stories of that match? That match was so ahead of its time.
0: Uh, the only the one thing I can remember is that, you know, uh, we had like a 16 foot ladder and the thing weighed a ton. And I'm like, why do we have a 16 foot ladder? And you know, Sabu's remark was, you know, because he just had a ladder match with Sean and um, Razor Ramon, and uh, he was like, well, they had a you know they had this great match with an eight foot ladder, so you know, we should be able to do even better with a 16-foot one. I'm like, oh, well, you know, you can't really argue with that logic. So, <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was fun stuff. Um, I, I think that, was, that match was, was one of the turning points um, where you started to really get recognized. Um, where was that match? Was it, was it in Michigan or was it in Ohio?
0: It was somewhere in Michigan. I forget what it was in Michigan, but it was somewhere in – it was a suburb of Detroit. And, uh, you know, Sabu asked me if I'd do the live match. I was like, sure, yeah, why not? And, you know, I was always up for anything. So, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, as far as Sabu and I were concerned, the biggest compliment I ever got was a fan came up and was like, you know, you guys, you know, I I, I know it's not, but, boy, when you guys were in there, it just it seems like it's so real. It's like, you know, you really want to beat each other. And that was such a, such a compliment, you know, such a compliment that somebody would come up and say something
1: like that. I I have to agree. I mean, that's about as good as it gets. You know, I mean, well, you know, when a fan, you know, just completely sets stuff aside and says, hey, man, you know, thank you. You entertained me. It was well worth my $25 that I plopped down. Oh, yeah.
0: Or, or. God I you know the the when they come up and they go gosh you know I I still remember this and I still remember that 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 tells me that I really you know I did my job I did something that you know uh created a memory for them that you know that that they still remember and uh that nothing there's no bigger compliment than than that you know that could have to me could have been the worst match I ever had but for some reason you know it it just stands out uh to them and they never forget it You know like the, so many people come up and talk to me About you know having the European title And that run had the European title And uh you know I you know I did a lot of Goofy stuff and at the time I was like oh gee Woods, you know You know this kind of sucks you know making a fool out of me Not even realizing That you know people loved it And still to this day come up and go oh yeah I Remember when you brought this out brought that out And you know you represent Transylvania And still you know talk about it so you know that was an opportunity for me you know that was a chance that allowed me to uh, you know however many years later people still remember it and come up and talk to me about it so uh, can't thank you know vince enough for that
1: <clears throat> well can you can you pinpoint or or put put your finger on your favorite match that you've ever had with sabu
0: uh, boy, I you know no, not oh, right, right wrong, man. you know the out. the last one. I'd say the last we had a a match in TNA, uh, and it was it was a couple years ago. wasn't in TNA, but it was a it was a show that was ran by Hermie Sadler, and uh, he and I uh, wrestled. You know, had a lot of TNA guys on it. I I wasn't actually in TNA. Um, want to try and correct that. Um, but, I, you know, it was a TNA affiliated. I guess you could say, type Joe because, you know, uh, Herman was tight with uh, Jeff Jarrett at the time. And uh, I got, you know, and Sabu was kind of tied in with TNA at the time and I got to work with him. And, uh, man, it was just, it was like a night off. I mean, we did some, you know, some crazy stuff. You know, it was kind of like a, a hardcore type match. But, man, it was just, it was so easy. And even he said, you know, he'd forgotten how, how easy it was for to work with me and you know and I'd kind of forgotten how easy it was to work with him you know just you know and then before that we had had a match for this independent promoter named frank goodman in new york and same thing I mean it was just like you know it was like like we'd I've been working every night seven nights a week you know with each other it just was right there so and you know we were able to get the crowd on their feet uh, on a for on, anybody who's been to a Frank Goodman show knows we were like match 18,
1: uh, <laughs> and the we floor. didn't go.
0: To, yeah, we didn't go to the ring until 11:30, 12 o'clock, which meant that you know, short of a death or uh, somebody committing harry harry carry in the ring, they'd seen everything. They'd you know, but they could have sacrificed an animal on a pit of fire in the ring, or or you know, a virgin, and that would have been the only thing they hadn't seen. Before you walk out there at midnight to have your match, and we were able to keep those people and get them, you know, on their feet, and that was uh, a bigger compliment to both of us than anything else anybody could ever say.
1: Now this was uh, this was in New York, correct? Before he moved yeah. to Florida. Yeah.
0: Okay. yeah. Yeah.
1: Have Have Before. you had a chance to uh, to work for Frank since he's moved to Florida?
0: No, huh? no, no. Okay. I have not.
1: Cool. Cool. I, I don't understand why he would try to run in Florida. Florida, just for some reason, it just doesn't get hot, you know, as far as the business is concerned. And, you know, he, he did rather well in New York, you know, and the, his product was always fun to watch. Um, what, what do you think of Frank as a, as a promoter and as a, a guy? And also, have you ever worked with him?
0: I've never worked with him in the ring. i mean I've never worked with him in the ring, and you know as a promoter i mean <laughs> he's uh he's definitely a quandary i mean you know you show up and he would pay you um but you know uh you know and then he'd have a speech about respecting the business and then go out in the ring after he's walked around with a you know his long ponytail uh and then put on a mask. And then with his long ponytail hanging out and expecting people not to know who he is. And, uh, and you know, he would then shove hot dogs up a guy's butt in the ring. But he'd have a speech about, um, you know, respecting business. And then, you know, you'd show up and he'd always pay you. Um, but then, you know, he one time called me and, you know, basically told me, well, you know, uh, it's been a while, you know, they're taking longer to build my house down here in Florida, and I've got bills to pay, and I run these shows to make money, and if I don't have you on the show, then I'll make more money. And I'm like, well, are you canceling the show? No. Well, Frank, uh, could you please make sure you call me and let me, you know, please let me know, are you going to cancel me off the show? Because I could go work these other shows, but I gave you my word that I would work your show. Well, I'll get back with you. Of course, never calls me and, of course, continues to advertise me. And, of course, I then, you know, don't take the other show, but now I don't work on that day because Frank took me off the show because he just simply didn't want to pay me. And, um, you know, uh, but continued to advertise me to the point to where people showed up and were like, hey, at the show the next night that I did get to work, and we're like, oh, where were you last night? I'm like, well, Frank told me, you know, didn't book me or unbooked me, and he acted like you were still there. Uh, so, you know, go figure.
1: Hmm. Sounds like a pain in the ass. But no. you know, you uh, can't you probably can't just win uh them
0: all. you can't win them all and probably j you know, you know, Frank's not necessarily the best businessman, I guess you could say after doing things like that, or at least for that time he wasn't, and so therefore I really don't do business with him anymore. So you know, I like to try and do good business and I live by the motto that if you treat me good, I'll do everything I can to treat you better. If you do, you treat me bad, I'm going to do everything I can to treat you worse, you know, or just not, you know, and then, you know, in some cases I'm just not going to deal with you at all. But in most cases, if you, you piss me off and I'm going to make you my personal hobby and I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that, you know, you pay some sort of price that's commensurate with whatever price I had to pay because of you being an idiot. So,
1: so out of, um, Out of all the the students that you've trained, and I mean, we have we have the tough enough kids. We've got we've got the blue meanie. Which I know they're all your children.
0: They're not my children. Oh no 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 no! That's a big mistake. I love these interviews because it gives me a chance to clear things up. They're not my kid. They're not my children. The kids, calling them my kids, that's an old wrestling term. And, again, that's a lot of people think they know what it is, but they don't know what it is. Uh, being somebody's kid meant that you were responsible for you, for them. Do you understand? It doesn't mean that they're your father. The guy who trained me, I'm Jim Lancaster's kid. That doesn't mean that he is my dad. doesn't mean that I'm his child. It means that back in the day, uh, Protecting the business, the term protecting business is not a misused term nowadays. They think protecting the business means not smarting people up. It couldn't be anything further from that because we've already established that the last time anybody was not smart to the business probably 1932. Protecting the business was not just letting any Tom, Dick, or Harry get into the thing because it only takes one guy to kill the business or kill the town that you've been working and building up so that you could draw money. So it takes one moron to go out there and ruin it. So... You were held personally accountable for uh, for who you brought into the business and what and if that guy screwed it up, then he also screwed it up for you and it, it affected how you fed your family, so that they, they were referred to as your kid uh, to this day i'm I'll be forty five next month, and uh Jim Lancaster, who trained me twenty six years ago, still gets phone calls from Other guys, other veterans and old-timers, who will call up and go, hey, uh, did you see on the Internet, on that that Internet thing, you know, what your kid said? Or did you see your, your kid on Tough Enough? Or did you see your kid do that stupid thing on TV? Guess who gets a phone call? I do. Because until I get out of this business, I'm still a reflection on him. So, therefore, I'm still his kid. And the kids in Tough Enough and anybody else I train are my kids, meaning that I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that they succeed and are, are, and are the best they can possibly be in addition wise to this business because they're a reflection on me. And I don't want them to ruin my reputation that I've spent 26 years building uh, or affect my way of making a living. So I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure they know what they're doing. They're my kids, not my children. They're my kids.
1: kids.
0: That okay. makes sense?
1: Makes all the sense in the world. Now, um... I, I know that you're, you're, you're as much proud as, as for each of your kids. I understand yeah. Oh that.
0: yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: has it surprised you that not as many have gone on to quote unquote stardom in the business?
0: What do you consider to be a star? I mean, well, blue, Mini, blue Mini blue menu was, uh, part of a huge thing with the BWO and, ECW and very incredibly immensely popular and, and was then in WWE I mean Maven went from complete obscurity and never having a match in front of people to having his very first match on Raw and had all the tools if he had just continue, you know, kept his demons in check uh, and been a little more mature would continue to have uh, developed and eventually would have been a major 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 star in professional wrestling Um you got to you got to understand man uh, you, you know being an NFL football player is pretty elite isn't it I and mean, that's you know being in the major leagues of baseball is pretty pretty elite um, being an NBA player is pretty pretty elite thing to do right but how many teams are there in the NFL and how many players are in each team how many players how many teams are there in uh, major league baseball how many players are in each baseball team um. Okay, how many WWEs are there, and how many play? How many wrestlers are there in WWE? That's a good point. I
1: so don't even what know what do you con-
0: What do you consider a star? I mean, for Christ's sake, what's it take to impress you people? I mean, think about it. <laughs> uh, seriously, Very I mean,
1: point,
0: you know, f- what do you want? I mean, the- every single guy. In the WWE, is some kind of star because if you weren't, think, remember, listen very carefully. Listen very carefully for you and all your listeners. Listen very carefully. Thirty seconds of airtime costs thirty thousand dollars. One minute of airtime costs sixty grand. They give that guy a one minute promo. They give him a one minute vignette. They give him anything on that T V show. On a not a national, but an international T V show. Is that man, is that guy not a star? Yes he is. I mean truly. What what do you want him to do? <laughs> I see mean,
1: you know that's a very good point.
0: Maybe uh, all those kids on Tough Enough were, you know, the, granted, it takes time to really realize potential of talent. It takes years. It takes years to learn this business of experience of good and bad, to really get a grasp of it, to go to a certain level. But just because a guy's not in the main event does not mean he's not a star. Just because he's not in the middle of the car doesn't mean he's not a star. Those guys, all of those kids, uh. uh were stars. Dan Severin, major star in the UFC. I trained him for the UFC. I trained him for professional wrestling. He made it to WWE, major star. Held the NWA World Heavyweight title. Was he the best, you know, worker? No. But he was a star. You know, D.O. Brown, I trained him. He's a star. He was, you know, you said yourself in Japan. Uh, You know, I'd go on down the list of guys who truly... Have, advanced, you know, have been an asset to this business that I helped train. And I'm very proud of that. And, you know, they've all had different levels of success, especially guys on the major levels have all, all have different levels of success, but they've had all been very successful and have, you know, the biggest level of success is to be able to make an, a living and be able to feed your family by doing this business as your primary form of income. And I've got lots of guys that have been able to to have been able to do that. You know. So, um, you know, uh, as far as am I disappointed that one or not, you know, as many have been stars. I mean again, you know, what's it gonna take to impress you enough to consider them to be a star? They some of these people were in WWE and, and you yourself said, uh, uh how elite is an NFL player or baseball player there's tons of base and not saying anything against them but how many football players are in the NFL how many football players how many baseball players are in you know Major League Baseball how many wrestlers are in WWE and how many WWE's are there there's only one there's only one team and how many players are on that team so will this guy on the toe Funaki is a star for Christ's sake
1: yeah, uh a few weeks ago I, I had Michael Modest on the show and and he said that um a lot of people a lot of the boys they they have they they want the big time, the the dance is the WWE. He says no. The dance for him is being able to go out there, make a living doing what he loves and to be able to call himself a professional wrestler. That's my trade. And and I see that, that you're in the same, same boat. Um, w- would you agree?
0: Absolutely. Uh, WWE is fantastic. Uh, I have nothing but good things to say about WWE. But <clears throat> WWE is not to be-all-in-all of the wrestling business. Um, you're a worker. The idea You'll always make money. You won't, make, you won't always make as much money as you would somewhere else, but you'll always make money. WWE is the place where you're going to make the most money. And you're going to get the most recognition. And you're going to have the most opportunity to truly have that commercial to make a name for yourself that's going to last well beyond your time in WWE, case in point, myself. Uh, Think about Greg Valentine, Tito Santana, uh, Randy Savage, Ricky Steamboat, um, George Steele, Steel. uh, Those guys, they made their name for Vince back in the late 80s. And they still have a name to this day in the wrestling business. So working for the WWE is like the pinnacle. It's not the be-all end all. Being a wrestler, being able to make a living and doing what you love to do for a living and not have to do something else is truly the be-all end all. It doesn't matter to me if there's 500 or 5 or 5,000 or 50,000 or 500,000 people in that building. just the the sheer joy of getting out there and getting in the ring and getting the opportunity to do the thing that uh, I would have cut off my right testicle to have gotten an opportunity to do 26 years ago and to still be able to get to do it, you know, I can't say how blessed I am. sounds corny. sounds kind of, you know, foppish to say that kind of crap. But, you know, when you genuinely love what you do – then, you know, it's not corny. It, it really is. I mean, I, wouldn't, I, I can tell you right now, if I didn't genuinely love to do what I do, I wouldn't have been doing it for 26 years. I'd have found some other way to make a living. I'm far, I'm more than intelligent enough. I can certainly do something else and make money or more money, actually, than I would as a professional wrestler. But I did, I do what I do because I just I absolutely have always loved it and will always love it.
1: Well, I'll, I'm, I'm going to ask you the, the standard question that I ask all my guests. Um, this is completely hypothetical. I am going to run an indie show and you a headline. And I could fly in what, whomever you would like to work with that is not under contract to any of the companies. Who would you like me to fly in to work with you in the main event?
0: Well, let me ask you something. If you're an indie promoter, and, uh, are you running that town on a monthly basis? Yes, sir. Okay, you're running a town on a monthly basis. Let me ask you something. Why would you want to fly somebody in to work with me? Why wouldn't you want to build and elevate one of your guys to look like they were on the same level as me mm-hmm. so that he would be a draw against me? And so, therefore, by working with me, we could do some kind of business to give that guy a rub to thus elevate him more, which would elevate the rest of your car.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, why would you
0: want to, you want to fly somebody else in? I wouldn't to
1: in? fly in the guy. I wouldn't have to fly in the guy. The uh. gentleman that I was thinking of lives out here in the Bay Area, and that would be Michael Modest. Uh-huh. Um, Mike is possibly the best independent heel I've ever seen. And uh-huh. I think that you as a babyface coming in to work with Mike as the heel would just – the, the, it would draw money. It would entertain my socks off, two of my personal favorites. Um, uh uh-huh. In other words, I was asking who, who would you like to come in, bring in to work with? Or, or would w- you prefer to keep it with a local guy?
0: I would suggest that if you're trying to do the right kind of business and build your, build your town, that you would want me to come in and work with one of your guys.
1: There you go. There that it would make is. more sense I've to been me. Months, I've been waiting months for someone to give me that answer.
0: <laughs> well, you know. I I don't know. I mean, it would make more sense to me to do that than it would to to fly another guy in because that then now, you know, what are you going to do next month? Fly two more guys in? Exactly. You're you're now you're you know you're running a dead end street. So. Sure, um, so, and I'm sure a lot of other guys that you know that formerly worked for WWE, my peers or whatever, would be going, shut up, shut up. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, business-wise, it just doesn't make good business to for you, the promoter, to do something like that. So,
1: Awesome. Well, Mr. Snow, we've gone almost two hours. Um, oh, my God. My, my butt is sore from sitting under the learning tree. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: my the, the fans out there, the listeners, I mean, I've got workers that listen. I've got promoters, all kinds of different people listening. And once again, it was another trip under the learning tree. And... I do this show for the younger kids so that they're that are coming up so that they'll be able to, you know, learn the business properly. And it's kinda like Sesame was,
0: Street for Wrestling.
1: There you go. It, Sesame Street for Wrestling. That's yeah. it exactly. And Mr Snow, it was an honor to have you on my show today and well, thank I you. greatly appreciate it.
0: Well thank you very um, much. It was uh it was definitely a pleasure to uh to get to be on the show and, and uh definitely a compliment that anybody would even consider me uh, pertinent enough to listen to for two hours, for God's sakes. What are you people thinking? Tremendous. Get get a life.
1: uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I do have a life, and I'm going to – actually, I have a wife, too, and she happens to say hello. You are her personal favorite pro wrestler.
0: Oh, thank you. All right.
1: Um, What happened was uh, we started dating, and, and I was watching Tough Enough, and she came in. And she saw it, and she said, oh, who's that guy? I explained who you were, and she was hooked.
0: Well, that's, thank God, because otherwise I wouldn't have a job. So <laughs> There you
1: go. <laughs> well, Mr. Snow, um, if anybody would like to contact you, promoter or whatnot, and, and would love to, to book you, maybe even a seminar, how would they go about doing that?
0: Uh, if they just uh, – they can email, email me at uh, wwefrosty at aol.com.
1: There it is. Awesome. Well, Mr. Snow, thank you for your time once again. It thank was you. it was my pleasure. It was fun. Uh we'll have to do this again. Um
0: Yeah. Just let me know.
1: Oh, oh before you go, um what are you doing this weekend?
0: Uh actually I'm going to be at the uh, Wizard World convention Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in Chicago, Illinois at the uh, convention center there. So if anybody's oh. listening that happens to be in Chicago and you want to come out and say hi or want to ask a question? Feel free. Come on up.
1: Tremendous. Tremendous. All righty, Al. Once again, thanks, brother. I, I can't say thanks enough, man. You know, it's, Thank you. you. know, It's always always a learning experience, and we'll definitely have to have you on again.
0: Okay. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
1: All right, brother. You have a nice evening, and thanks again for your time, Al.
0: Okay. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.
1: All right, brother. Wow is all I have to say. I just went two hours with al snow what more can i say unbelievable i'm blown up i can't wait to listen to this interview again um well let's run down the sponsors real quick uh wrestlewarehouse.com uh dvds lucha dvds masks uh socal pro wrestling dvds uh you can get you need to uh pick up all the shows from this year uh adam pierce is on fire and uh Actually, uh, before we get off the air, I'd like to uh, put over both Adam Pierce and Scorpio Sky uh, this past Saturday in Oceanside, San Diego, California. Uh, Pierce defended the uh, NWA World Heavyweight title against Scorpio Sky, and from what I hear, they tore it down. So, uh, Jeff, if you're listening, I need to get that footage as soon as possible. Uh, and our other sponsor would be FogCityWrestling.com. Uh, July 5th in San Francisco, they'll be debuting in a new building. Uh, the Keysar Pavilion. Um, Jimmy snooker and Nick Bockwinkel will be in the house for autographs. Rikishi's on the card. Uh, WWE developmental signee, newly signed Brian Cage will be on the card. Uh, there's all kinds of guys. FogCityWrestling.com, and also uh, a quick plug: RFVideo.com. Rob, thank you for hooking me up with Al. It was m- definitely a pleasure and uh, an amazing interview. Once again, thank you. Uh, you can get our archives of our shows at rubberguardradio.com or blogtalkradio.com backslash Uh You can also hit us on MySpace, myspace.com backslash Um Jeez, uh, hit me up. You know, if you're a fan, uh, own a company, a worker, you know, whatever, you want to get on the show, hit me up with a message. Or you can even email me directly, kidzombie2000 at aol.com. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday, June 26th, with uh, Rob Feinstein for an hour at 7 o'clock, followed by Shane and Shannon, the Ballard brothers, at 8. So we'll uh, talk to you guys on Thursday. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, uh-huh, in my dentist's office.